Chapter fifteen of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, eighteen forty seven through eighteen sixty five, by Ward Hill Lemon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter fifteen Cabinet Councils. In November, eighteen sixty one, the public mind was wildly agitated by an episode of the war which, although without military significance, at one time threatened to predetermine the final issue of the contest in favor of the independence of the southern states by the accession of a powerful ally and auxiliary to their cause it not only seriously imperiled our existing relations of peace and amity with a foreign power but came near converting its declared neutrality into an active sympathy and cooperation with the confederacy this incident commonly known as the trent affair originated in the unauthorized and illegal arrest of the confederate commissioners messrs mason and slidell with their secretaries on board a british mail packet by captain charles wilkes of the united states navy and their forcible transfer from the protection of the british flag to the frigate san jacinto under wilkes command this arbitrary proceeding wholly unauthorized by the government and in flagrant violation of every principle of public law was received with a universal outburst of joy and exultation throughout the entire country. The Confederates saw in this wanton aggression and outrage the realization of their cherished hopes of an imbroglio, possibly a war, between England and the United States. The satisfaction evinced in the northern states seemed less comprehensible, as the first outgoing blockade-runner could easily have supplied substitutes for the captured and imprisoned commissioners yet for this act which was acclaimed and sanctioned by a verdict of popular approval endorsed by a special resolution of thanks in the national legislature captain wilkes was commended and congratulated in a letter from the chief of his department in fact every one seemed to vie with every one else in weaving a civic chaplet to the commander of the san jacinto for his lawless deed amidst the wild excitement created by this international interlude the president alone maintained an imperturbable calmness and composure from the very first moment he regarded the capture of the commissioners as unwise and inexpedient he was heard to say repeatedly that it would lead to dangerous complications with england unfortunately said he we have played into the hands of that wily power and placed in their grasp a whip with which to scourge us he went on to say further that the trent affair had occurred at the most inopportune and critical period of the war and would greatly tend to its prolongation by creating a genuine bond of sympathy between england and the insurgent states when interrogated on one occasion as to whether it was not a great humiliation to him to surrender the captured commissioners on the peremptory demand of john bull mr lincoln replied yes it was the bitterest pill i have ever swallowed there is however this counterbalancing consideration that england's triumph will not have a long tenure of life after our war is over i trust and believe successfully to ourselves we shall be powerful enough to call her to an account and settlement for the embarrassment and damage she has inflicted upon us in our hour of trouble and this reminds me of a story which i think aptly illustrates the condition of things existing between their government and ours he then related the following anecdote 
a sick man in illinois the hope of whose recovery was far from encouraging was admonished by his friends present that as probably he had not many hours to live he should bear malice to none and before closing his earthly account should make peace with all his enemies turning his face to the wall and drawing a long sigh the invalid was lost for a few moments in deep reflection giving utterance to a deep groan as he mentally enumerated the long catalogue of enmities incurred which would render the exertion of peacemaking a somewhat prolonged one he admitted in a feeble voice that he undoubtedly believed this to be the best course and added the man whom i hate most cordially of all is bill johnson and so i guess i'll begin with him johnson was summoned and at once repaired to the bedside of his repentant friend the latter extended to him his hand saying with a meekness that would have done honor to moses that he wanted to die at peace with all the world and to bury all his past enmity bill who was much inclined to the melting mood here burst into tears making free use of his bandana and warmly returning the pressure of the dying man's hand solemnly and impressively assured him of his forgiveness as the now reconciled friends were about to separate in the expectation of never again seeing each other on earth stop exclaimed the penitent invalid to his departing visitor who had now reached the door the account is now square between us bill johnson but see here if i should happen to get well that old grudge stands in december about one month after the arrest of the confederate commissioners when mr lincoln and his cabinet were in a state of alarm fearing a war with england mr chase one day came to the president and told him that mr stanton who had been attorney-general under buchanan had talked with him on the subject of this trouble with great britain and had expressed the opinion that the action of the american government in arresting mason and slidell was legal and could be sustained by international law the president told mr chase that stanton did not like him and had treated him rudely on one occasion but that if mr chase thought stanton would meet him he would be glad to have him do so and give his views on the subject in an hour mr chase had stanton in mr lincoln's presence mr lincoln expressed his gratification at hearing of mr stanton's views and asked him to repeat them when mr stanton had finished the discussion of the case and of the laws bearing thereon mr lincoln expressed his thanks and asked stanton to put his opinion in writing which he promised to do by ten o'clock the next morning the opinion was brought at the appointed time mr lincoln read it and filed it and then said mr stanton this is a time of war and you are as much interested in sustaining the government as myself or any other man this is no time to consider mere party issues the life of the nation is in danger i need the best counselors around me i have every confidence in your judgment and have concluded to ask you to become one of my counselors the office of the secretary of war will be vacant and i want you to accept the position will you do it stanton was amazed and said why mr president you 
take me by surprise. This is an embarrassing question, but if you will give me a day or two to consider, I will give you an answer. Two days later he called on the president and signified his intention to accept. On the 15th day of January, 1862, the portfolio of Secretary of War was placed in his hands. The appointment of Mr. Stanton in Mr. Lincoln's cabinet was a great surprise to the country. Those who were acquainted with the relations existing between these two men when they were both practicing lawyers were not only astonished at this appointment, but were apprehensive that there could not possibly be harmony of action and cooperation between them. There were, perhaps seldom, if ever, two really great men who were as unlike in all respects as Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Stanton. They were dissimilar in their habits of life, disposition, taste, in fact in every particular of the general make-up of man. But Mr. Lincoln fully appreciated Mr. Stanton's great ability, both as a lawyer and as a cabinet counselor under Mr. Buchanan. The President needed the ablest counsel he could obtain and allowed no personal consideration to influence him in selecting the right man for the service. In order to make the history of this appointment complete in its personal element, it will be necessary to go back to the year 1858, when Abraham Lincoln was practicing law in Springfield, Illinois, and Edwin M. Stanton was at the head of his profession in Cincinnati. The celebrated McCormick Reaper and Mower case was before the United States Court in Cincinnati. Mr. Stanton had been retained as counsel-in-chief on one side of the case, and to be associated with him were T.D. Lincoln of Cincinnati and Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. When Mr. Lincoln arrived in Cincinnati to attend the trial, he called upon Mr. Stanton, who treated him in so impolite and rude a manner that he went to his client and informed him that he should have to withdraw as his counsel in the case, and stated his reasons therefore. Mr. Lincoln was entreated to remain in the case, and Mr. Stanton was seen and was talked to about the matter. Mr. Lincoln happened to be in a room adjoining where this conversation occurred, and overheard Mr. Stanton say that he would not associate with such a d-blank-blank gawky long-armed ape as that. If he could not have a man who was a gentleman in appearance associated with him in the case, he would himself abandon it. When the client returned, Mr. Lincoln refunded to him the $500 retainer fee, peremptorily declining to keep it. He then returned to Urbana, Illinois, where court was in session, and, to explain his unexpected return, related the fact and his mortification to his associate members of the bar. After this event, Mr. Lincoln never met Mr. Stanton until the Trent affair brought them together, yet it is certain that Mr. Lincoln never forgot the gratuitous insult then cast upon him. To this day there is a settled belief that, at this time, the administration councils manifested a lack of hearty cooperation and unity of purpose and sentiment. This is a mistake, for throughout Mr. Lincoln's administration as much harmony as could reasonably be expected existed between him and his cabinet ministers. Differences arose between them at times in regard to minor considerations of policy, but never to the extent that the differences were not eventually harmonized, compromised, or accommodated. To be sure, many things occurred during the fearful war struggle about which he and his cabinet differed in their estimates and conclusions, and Mr. Lincoln thereby was often disappointed and grieved, 
as one instance of his disappointment may be mentioned his abandonment of a message to congress in deference to the opinion and counsel of his advisers this occurred directly after his return from the conference he and mr seward had with messrs stevens campbell and hunter at city point on the james river notwithstanding his hatred of the institution of slavery mr lincoln believed that the holder of slaves had a right of property in them which the government had no right legally or morally to interfere with in the states unless forced thereto by the necessities of war he gladly approved the action of congress in providing for the payment of compensation for the slaves liberated in the district of columbia the message above referred to recommended an appropriation of three hundred million dollars to be appropriated among the several slave states in proportion to slave population as compensation to the owners of liberated slaves in the insurgent states with the condition that the insurgents should lay down their arms disband their troops and return and renew their allegiance to the united states government mr seward at this time was not present being confined to bed by injuries he had received by being thrown from his carriage all the other members of the cabinet were present every one of whom opposed the message lincoln then asked how long will this war last no reply came he then answered his own question saying it will doubtless last one hundred days longer we are now spending three million dollars a day which rate will aggregate the amount i propose to appropriate in order to put an end to this terrible bloodshedding then with a deep sigh he said since you are all opposed to me i will not send this message and turning round he placed the paper in his drawer it is rather a curious coincidence that the war did last just about a hundred days after lincoln's remarkable interview with his cabinet on this subject there is also a prevailing opinion that the secretary of war stanton at times arbitrarily refused to obey or carry out mr lincoln's orders this is also not true this opinion is largely based upon mr stanton's refusal of permits to persons desirous of going through the lines into insurgent districts the persons who were disobliged in this respect were very severe in their comments on mr stanton's course which they considered harsh disobliging and sometimes cruel on refusal of mr stanton to accommodate in many such cases mr lincoln was appealed to and his invariable reply was i cannot always know whether a permit ought to be granted and i want to oblige everybody when i can and stanton and i have an understanding that if i send an order to him which cannot be consistently granted he is to refuse it this he sometimes does this state of things caused him to say to a man who complained of stanton i have not much influence with this administration but i expect to have more with the next not long before the death of mr lincoln mr stanton tendered his resignation as secretary of war his letter of resignation was couched in the kindest language paying a heartfelt tribute to mr lincoln's uniform and constant friendship and his faithful devotion to the country it stated that the writer had accepted the position of secretary of war for the purpose of holding it only till the war should end and that now he felt that his work was completed and that it was his duty to resign 
Mr. Lincoln was greatly moved by the tone of the letter, and said, Mr. Stanton, you have been a faithful public officer, and it is not for you to say when you will be no longer needed here. At the President's earnest solicitation the letter of resignation was withdrawn, and Mr. Stanton continued to occupy the War Office until after Mr. Lincoln's death. When Mr. Lincoln submitted his proclamation of emancipation for the consideration of the cabinet, he had not conferred with anyone about the phraseology of the instrument. He read the document through without a single interruption or comment. They all concurred in opinion that it was an admirable paper. Mr. Chase then said, Mr. President, you have invoked the considerate judgment of mankind, but you have not invoked the blessing of Almighty God on your action in this matter. I believe he has something to do with this question. Mr. Lincoln then said, You are right, Mr. Secretary. I most humbly thank you for that suggestion. It was an oversight of mine. Do me the favor of taking a pen and paper and adding what you would have in conclusion. Mr. Chase wrote seven words, namely, and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Mr. Lincoln then added them to the end of the last paragraph, which made it read as follows. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. In referring to the differences of opinion entertained between Mr. Lincoln and the members of his cabinet, it will be observed that, in the matter of reconstruction of the state governments, his policy was, according to his proclamation, that the persons who were authorized to re-establish such governments were to be the qualified voters of the respective states before the acts of secession. Mr. Chase, alone of all the cabinet, objected to this clause of the proclamation, and insisted that it should be changed so as to read, instead of qualified voters, citizens of the state. But the Attorney General, in the year 1862, had given an opinion that the colored men born in the United States were citizens of the United States, and if the phrase one-tenth of the qualified voters required to reorganize were changed to one-tenth of the citizens, the organization might have been legally composed entirely of colored men. Mr. Lincoln was set in his purpose that the restored governments in the seceded states should be organized by the qualified voters of those states before secession was attempted, and Mr. Chase had to submit to the inevitable. The great caution with which Mr. Lincoln approached the important subject of elective franchise may be shown in his letter to Governor Hahn. Private executive mansion washington march thirteenth eighteen sixty four honorable michael hahn my dear sir i congratulate you on having fixed your name in history as the first free state governor of louisiana now you are about to have a convention which among other things will probably define the elective franchise i barely suggest for your private consideration whether some of the colored people may not be let in, as, for instance, the very intelligent and especially those who have fought gallantly in our ranks. 
they would probably help in some trying time to come to keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom but this is only a suggestion not to the public but to you alone yours truly signed a lincoln this would seem to show conclusively that mr lincoln did not intend to force negro suffrage upon the people in the rebel states doubtless he desired that the negroes should have the right of suffrage but he expected and hoped that the people would confer the right of their own will he knew that if this right were forced upon them it could not or would not be exercised in peace he realized in advance that the experiment of legislative equality was one fraught with difficulties and dangers not only to the well-being of the negro but to the peace of society while i am said he in favor of freedom to all of god's human creatures with equal political rights under prudential restrictions i am not in favor of unlimited social equality there are questions arising out of our complications that trouble me greatly the question of universal suffrage to the freedman in his unprepared state is one of doubtful propriety i do not oppose the justice of the measure but i do think it is of doubtful political policy and may rebound like a boomerang not only on the republican party but upon the freedman himself and our common country as the war approached its conclusion and mr lincoln foresaw the inevitable submission of the insurgents his mind did not become less seriously affected by the contemplation of the new responsibilities which would devolve upon him as chief magistrate of the reorganized and reconstructed nation his second inaugural address mirrored his frame of mind to a great extent he was oppressed with great care resulting from a consciousness that changes would occur in the near future which would impose upon him new and difficult duties in which he might possibly find himself in conflict not only with the men in his own party who already persistently opposed him but with many other public men who had supported his administration throughout the existence of the war there seemed to be no settled policy for the contemplated new state of things and few men thought alike on the subject there were almost as many theories as there were distinguished men to advance them this state of things devolved the greater responsibility upon mr lincoln and he keenly felt the weight of it upon no occasion either public or private did mr lincoln hesitate to express freely his views and sentiments as to the conditions under which he would have liked the war of the rebellion to terminate all that he desired was that the enemy should cease fighting lay down their arms and return to their homes their duties and their allegiance to their country he harbored no feeling of revenge no thirst for the blood of his erring fellow-countrymen his highest aspiration being peace and a restored union from what he has been repeatedly heard to declare he would gladly have spared to his vanquished foes the humiliation of a public surrender if the war could otherwise have been brought to a close he fondly hoped for a condition of things which would render reconstruction and love of country assured fixed and immutable in discussing the question of reconstruction previous to the surrender of general lee i have more than once heard him say we cannot hang all these people 
even if they were in our power. There are too many of them. Think of the consequences of such an act. Since this government was established, there have been comparatively few trials or executions for treason or offenses against the state. This has been eminently a government of loyal citizens. A distinguished gentleman, an earnest advocate for punishment of the rebels, once asked him what he intended to do when the moment arrived for him to act. Do, said he, why reconstruct the machinery of this government this is all that i see i can properly do the gentleman with much asperity exclaimed mr president it does appear to some of your friends myself included as if you had taken final leave of your senses as if it were intended that treason should henceforth not be regarded as odious and the offenders cutthroats and authors of this war should not only go unpunished but receive encouragement to repeat their outrages on the government with impunity they should be hanged higher than haman sir mr lincoln here asked mr blank blank suppose when the moment has arrived the hanging policy you recommend to be adopted will you agree to be chief executioner if so let me know and i will at once appoint you a brigadier general and prospective public hangman of the united states will you serve if so appointed mr lincoln responded his interlocutor i supposed you regarded me as a gentleman at least you ought to know better than to ask me to do or believe me capable of doing such dirty work you speak said mr lincoln interrupting him of being a gentleman in this free country of ours when it comes to rights and duties especially in time of war the gentleman and the vagrant stand on exactly the same plane their rights are equal their duties the same as a law-abiding citizen you are no more exempt from the performance of what you call dirty work than if you were not a gentleman his visitor here arose abruptly and left the room in great indignation relieving himself of his pent-up wrath by a torrent of oaths and imprecations he was a united states senator and i have not at all exaggerated his profanity or his deportment on the occasion here narrated he did not indeed intermit his denunciations which were besides embellished with the choicest specimens of billingsgate until a casual rencounter on the avenue with a member of the lower house afforded him the solace of explaining lincoln is a damned idiot he has no spirit and is as weak as an old woman he was never fitted for the position he holds after this war is over it would not at all surprise me if he were to fill the public offices with a horde of these infernal rebels and choose for his constitutional advisers the damnable leaders of the rebellion themselves i am not aware that this senator ever again visited the president after the capitulation of general lee what was to be done with the leaders of the rebellion became a most serious question persons who had been throughout the war the fiercest and most radical opponents of the rebels such men as horace greeley and others became suddenly most conservative and the converse course was pursued by many of the most conservative persons 
now urging relentless punishment of the offending leaders. General Grant asked for special instructions of Mr. Lincoln, whether he should try to capture Jefferson Davis, or let him escape from the country if he wanted to do so. Mr. Lincoln replied by relating the story of an Irishman who had taken the pledge of Father Matthew, and having become terribly thirsty applied to a bartender for a lemonade, and while it was being prepared he whispered to the bartender, "'And couldn't you put a little brandy in it, all unbeknownst to meself?' Mr. Lincoln told the general he would like to let Jeff Davis escape, all unbeknown to himself. He had no use for him." On the day of the assassination, General Creswell came to Washington to see the President in the interest of an old friend who had been located in the South and had got into the rebel army and had been captured by our troops and imprisoned. He drew an affidavit setting forth what he knew about the man, particularly mentioning extenuating circumstances which seemed to entitle him to the generosity or leniency of the government. General Creswell found the President very happy the Confederacy had collapsed. The scene at Appomattox had just been enacted. He was greeted with, Creswell, old fellow, everything is bright this morning. The war is over. It has been a tough time, but we have lived it out, or some of us have. And he dropped his voice a little on the last clause of the sentence. But it is over. We are going to have good times now, and a united country. After a time General Creswell told his story, read his affidavit, and said, I know the man has acted like a fool, but he is my friend and a good fellow. Let him out, give him to me, and I will be responsible that he won't have anything more to do with the Rebs. Creswell, said Mr. Lincoln, you make me think of a lot of young folks who once started out maying. To reach their destination they had to cross a shallow stream, and did so by means of an old flat boat. When the time came to return they found to their dismay that the old scow had disappeared. They were in sore trouble, and thought over all manner of devices for getting over the water, but without avail. After a time one of the boys proposed that each fellow should pick up the girl he liked best and wade over with her. The masterly proposition was carried out until all that were left upon the island was a little short chap and a great long gothic-built elderly lady. Now, Creswell, you are trying to leave me in the same predicament. You fellows are all getting your own friends out of this scrape, and you will succeed in carrying off one after another until nobody but jeff davis and myself will be left on the island and then i won't know what to do how should i feel how should i look lugging him over i guess the way to avoid such an embarrassing situation is to let them all out at once a somewhat similar illustration he made at an informal cabinet meeting at which was being discussed the disposition of jefferson davis and other prominent confederates each member of the cabinet gave his opinion. Most of them were for hanging the traitors, or for some severe punishment. Lincoln said nothing. Finally, Joshua F. Speed, his old and confidential friend who had been invited to the meeting, said, I have heard the opinion of your ministers, and would like to hear yours. 
"'Well, Josh,' replied Mr. Lincoln, "'when I was a boy in Indiana I went to a neighbor's house one morning and found a boy of my own size holding a coon by a string. I asked him what he had and what he was doing. He says, "'It's a coon. Dad cotched him six last night and killed all but this poor little cuss. Dad told me to hold him until he came back, and I'm afraid he's going to kill this one, too.' no abe i do wish he would go away well why don't you let him loose well, that wouldn't be right and if i let him go dad would give me hell but if he could get away himself it would be all right now said mr lincoln if jeff davis and those other fellows will only get away it will be all right but if we should catch them and i should let them go dad would give me hell the president of the Southern Confederacy was, however, afterwards captured and imprisoned at Fortress Monroe, charged with treason, etc., and at length admitted to bail. Mr. Horace Greeley, the great radical journalist, becoming one of his bondsmen. Mr. Davis was never brought to trial, and eventually the charges against him were ignored. He was a prisoner of state at Fortress Monroe for two years. In the year 1867 he was released on bail went to Canada, but subsequently returned to the state of Mississippi, where he lived in retirement until his death. On the night of the 3rd of March, 1865, Mr. Lincoln, with several members of his cabinet, was in attendance at the Capitol, awaiting the final passage of bills by Congress in order that they might receive the presidential signature. In the intervals between the reading, considering, and approving of these bills, the military situation was freely discussed. Everyone appeared to be happy at the prospect of the early re-establishment of peace, General Grant having just telegraphed a glowing account of his successes and his control of the situation, and expressing the hope that a very few days would find Richmond in the hands of the national forces and the army of General Lee disbanded or captured. While the members were felicitating one another on the approaching secession of hostilities, a second dispatch from General Grant was handed to Mr. Stanton, who, having read it, handed it to the President and became absorbed in thought. The telegram advised the Secretary of the receipt of a letter from General Lee requesting an immediate interview with a view to the re-establishment of peace between the two sections. The dispatch having been read by others of the party, Mr. Lincoln's spirits rose to a height rarely witnessed since the outbreak of the war all the better and kindlier impulses of his nature were aroused. The cry, What is to be done with the rebels when this cruel war is over? ceased to ring in his ears. He was unable to restrain himself from giving expression to the natural impulses of his heart, or from foreshadowing the magnanimity with which the Confederates were now to be treated. He did not hesitate to express himself as favorably disposed towards granting the most lenient and generous terms to a defeated foe. Mr. Stanton could now no longer restrain himself. He was in a towering rage, and turning to the President, his eyes flashing fire, he exclaimed, "'Mr. President, you are losing sight of the paramount consideration at this juncture, namely, how and by whom is this war to be closed? Tomorrow is Inauguration Day. You will then enter upon your second term of office.' read again this dispatch. Don't you appreciate its significance? 
if you are not to be president of an obedient, loyal, and united people, you ought not to take the oath of office. You are not a proper person to be empowered with so high and responsible a trust. Your work is already achieved, all but reconstruction. If any other authority than your own be for a moment recognized, or if terms of peace be agreed upon that do not emanate from yourself, and do not imply that you are the supreme head of the nation, you are not needed. You should not consent to act in the humiliating capacity of a mere figurehead, to aid in the acquisition of that fame for others which rightfully belongs to yourself. By thus doing, you will scandalize every true friend you possess in the country. It was now Mr. Lincoln's turn to become thoughtful. He sat at the table for a few minutes, absorbed in deep reflection, and then, addressing himself to the Secretary of War, said, "'Stanton, you are right. This dispatch did not at first sight strike me as I now consider it.' Upon this he took pen and paper, and hurriedly wrote the following dispatch, handing it to Stanton, and requesting him to date, sign, and send it at once. The dispatch ran as follows. The President directs me to say to you that he wishes you to have no conference with General Lee unless it be for the capitulation of Lee's army, or on some minor and purely military matter. He instructs me to say that you are not to decide, discuss, or confer on any political questions. The President, holding the decision of these questions in his own hands, will submit them to no military conference or convention. In the meantime, you are to press, to the utmost of your ability, your military advantage." The above dispatch was read, signed, and sent by Mr. Stanton immediately, without one word of comment, and soon afterward the entire party left the Capitol for their respective homes, there to await further developments. At the same time, the Secretary of War sent the following telegram to General Grant. Washington, March 3, 1865. Lieutenant General Grant, I send you a telegram, written by the President himself, in answer to yours of this evening, which I have signed by his order. I will add that General Ord's conduct in holding intercourse with General Longstreet upon political questions not committed to his charge is not approved. The same thing was done in one instance by Major Keyes, when the army was commanded by General McClellan, and he was sent to meet Howell Cobb on the subject of exchanges, and it was in that instance, as in this, disapproved. You will please in future instruct officers appointed to meet rebel officers to confine themselves to the matters specially committed to them. Signed, Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. On the succeeding day, a dispatch was received from General Grant in cipher, of which the following is a translation. City Point, March 4, 1865. Honorable E. M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Your dispatch of the third midnight received. I have a letter to General Lee, copy of which will be sent you by tomorrow's mail. I can assure you that no act of the enemy will prevent me pressing all advantages gained to the utmost of my ability. Neither will I, under any circumstances, exceed my authority, 
or in any way embarrass the government. It was because I had no right to meet General Lee on the subject proposed by him that I referred the matter for instructions. U.S. Grant, Lieutenant General. End of chapter 15. Cabinet Councils. Read by John Greenman.